This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here in the Situation Room on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. We welcome you to the program, regardless of how you're watching us, but I gotta tell you, I am sorry for having such a late start. I mean, we're an hour and a half late tonight, and I know that I have a habit of being a few minutes late, but tonight, we just had a full system failure. <laughs> Everything shut down. I had to restart the computer a couple times. Uh, we were having some software update issues, so... Uh, suffice it to say, it was a struggle getting on the air tonight, but we made it, we're here, and we're going to have a fantastic show. Though before we do get into the meat and potatoes of our show, there's one thing I wanted to bring to your attention, because as a broadcaster, you know that primarily what you're here to do is to inform and entertain, and sometimes that looks different than it does at other times, and, and sometimes it can be fun and frivolous, and sometimes it can be really serious, but... One of the things that I love as a broadcaster is getting to do things like this. Because there is a lady right now in Selma who actually the other night had her house shot up and, uh, well, it would have been the night before last actually because the news broke yesterday. But uh, the, the news really broke out yesterday after, um, after the show and so we didn't have a chance to bring it to you because I didn't know about it, but... This lady who lives in Selma, so somebody that's not too far from the Montgomery area, she had her house shot at, and uh, her dog luckily barked and warned her so that she could get out of the house, but this is an older lady. She's 77 years old. She's disabled. Her name is Mary Johnson, and unfortunately, after whoever shot at her house finished with that, they then set her home on fire, so she's the victim of arson, barely got out with her life. Her dog, unfortunately, didn't even make it. So not only has she lost all of her worldly possessions, she's also lost her dog. And if, if for anybody that knows an older person that has a dog, especially somebody that's a widow or widower, that could be something that is just instrumental to that person's life. And so having lost her entire house, having lost her dog, who I'm, I'm guessing she probably treated like a member of the family. I don't know that. I don't know her personally. But just seeing how, especially widows and widowers and, and older people, and she may not be a widow, I don't know. But uh, she doesn't seem to have any family around her. And uh, now that she's even lost that, she is asking for help, and people in the neighborhood have organized some places that you can help. Uh, one thing that they're doing is they have a GoFundMe started. If you go to my Twitter, at Tactics Radio right now, my most recent tweet, well, other than the podcast, because one goes out automatically when the podcast starts, but the one before that should be the link to the GoFundMe page. If you don't have Twitter, Facebook, you can go to Tactics Radio on Facebook, and I posted the link there a little bit earlier today. So please, if there's anything that you can, every little bit helps. It looks like they've already raised $22,000, which is a good start. It's not nearly enough to cover the loss of a home, but it, it really is a good start, and it's good to see people in the local area, neighbors coming forward and, and helping out where they can. I would hope that you would do the same, and I also would request, even more importantly, that you pray for better help than any human can ever give for some divine intervention and some comfort for her as well. I, I really do pray that she's all right. And, and for the inhuman savages 
that decided that it would be a good idea to shoot at a, maybe they didn't know she was an elderly person, but it really doesn't matter. They knew it was a house and they knew that there were people probably in it. Uh, to shoot at somebody's house like that indiscriminately that, that shows such a lack of concern for human life, uh, that's just a depravity that I don't really comprehend. And, and I hope, you know, if they don't get what's coming to them on this side of eternity, you can rest assured they're going to on the next. But, you know, hopefully they can change and turn their life around. But that shows a complete lack of humanity for somebody to do something like that. So on that very somber note, let's talk to something a little bit more fun and uplifting, coronavirus updates. I know that you're excited and thrilled to see our daily Alabama coronavirus update, but, you know, this is the news. This is what's going on in the world. So here we go. These are the latest figures from the Alabama Department of Public Health. We can bring those up right now. You'll see that the state of Alabama has 10,310 confirmed cases of the Wuhan coronavirus. You will notice also that there are 133,219 uh, tests that have been administered. There are 429 deaths and 1,287 hospitalizations from this virus. So the stats for today, not necessarily one that really sticks out at you. There, there's not one in particular that has any shock value, and it's getting to the point to where doing these updates every day, and I'm going to continue to do them as long as I feel that they're relevant, and I still do, but there's not a lot of commentary to give because we've kind of found ourselves in a comfortable lull, and there's not a ton going on. The cases, total confirmed cases have gone up a bit, but as far as being able to dig really deep into the data and get useful information out of it, at this point, it's more or less just presenting raw data. So I'll give some commentary, but I'm going to limit it a little bit because I don't want to over overstep and do any kind of uh, speculation on this. So you can see right here, these are the new coronavirus cases in the state of Alabama. And you will also notice that there's been a steady uptick since Sunday, but nothing that really you know, stop the presses, we got to report this, 300 granted, having 300 new cases, that's a bump, but not a huge one. And so this is somewhere around the realm of normalcy. Now it is up overall, if you look at, for example, this week versus the past week, and so that is significant. But uh, really 300 is about what we've come to expect here. It's a little high, but not ridiculously out of the stratosphere kind of high. So still a little up, but really not a lot to talk about there. New tests, there is some interesting material here because you do have new tests being a little lower than we're accustomed to being. But it could very well be, and this goes back to something I was saying the other day, it could very well be just because less people are feeling sick. And if less people are feeling sick, less people are actually getting the coronavirus, then there are also going to be less people that go in to get tested because they don't feel like they need it because they're not experiencing any symptoms. And this is one of the reasons that it is incredibly important that we start doing antibody tests. And the reason that I say that is it's really twofold. 
the reason that we need to do some antibody tests and, and get that really off the ground and, and get it to start working in the state of Alabama, and, and really this would be good advice for anywhere in the country, but especially here in Alabama where our testing's down a little bit, and that's probably because people just aren't feeling sick, one, it gives us good scientific insight. And this one should be obvious, but I'm going to go ahead and explain. It's really important for us to understand exactly how many people have already gotten this virus, how many people have already gotten over it, how many people are asymptomatic. That gives us a better understanding of what the mortality rate is going to be. It gives us a better understanding of how at risk people are. For example, if we see large quantities, large swaths of people in certain age groups that have the antibodies and others that don't, that can give us an idea of how vulnerable people are to it, how susceptible they are to catching it. Uh, I mean, there, there's a myriad of good information that can come from antibody testing. And that's why since the very beginning, one of the things that I've talked about is that data is going to be the most precious commodity when it comes to this. We need to get as much data as possible. The antibody test uh, really goes a long, long way in helping us understand exactly how that's going to come to fruition, exactly where we are and where our status is. And with a dearth of testing, the antibody test could provide us for some valuable insight into why people aren't getting tested, why people aren't feeling asymptomatic. Are they really just not getting sick? Is that a reason? Is that because people in Alabama just aren't contracting it as often because we live in a hot, humid climate, and so we're less susceptible to catching it? Are people actually catching it and just recovering? I mean, there's a thousand giant question marks that can be made a little smaller, and in some cases probably a lot smaller, if we just had some good data on the antibody testing. And so it is imperative that we go ahead and start looking at that. And, and the, the lack of new tests probably lends itself to that even more so. So let's go ahead and look at this one. These are new hospitalizations for the state of Alabama. And you'll notice here, still down, which lends itself to the theory that I was talking about the other day, that people aren't getting sick as often, so our testing numbers are down, and that seems like something we should be alarmed at. But if less people are feeling sick, and our total cases are not really something that's, that's insane, and the people that are getting sick, because, like I said, our cases are up a little bit. But if those cases are up a, bit, a little bit, but our hospitalizations stay down, that means more people are testing positive, but it also means that of those people that are testing positive, less people are getting sick enough to need to go to the hospital, which is a good thing and would also lend itself to the theory that I was talking about yesterday that a lot of the people that are going to be getting it now are the less vulnerable portions of the population. So you're going to have, for example, your young adults, your teenagers, people like that starting to get it now but they're not as susceptible to it. They're less likely to need hospitalization. They're less likely to have a really severe bout with it. And because of that, if the only people that are really left and, and really getting it are the people that are not nearly as vulnerable and most of the vulnerable population has already gotten it, then that gives us good insight into what we need to do next, whether or not we need to open the economy wide open, whether we need to open it a little bit and stagger it some, I mean, you know, personally, based on what I've been saying, and, and this comes as no surprise to anybody, I don't think the government should be making those decisions anyway. But what I want that information for is to inform citizens, to allow them to make good decisions, because with an ignorance, whether by sheer apathy or by people genuinely trying to make smart decisions but just don't have good information, 
that is going to help inform the citizen. The apathetic person's not going to care, but the person that genuinely wants to make a responsible decision to help out others is going to look at that data, help them understand and comprehend what it all means, and make their decision based upon that. So that goes a really, really long way in helping us know as a society what we are to do next. So let's go ahead and look at the deaths from the COVID-19. You can see there here in the Yellowhammer State, today was a pretty bad day. Pretty bad compared to several other days. This is one of the days that we've had the highest number of deaths. I, I believe that this would be fourth. So not at all something that should be shirked. We're right there flirting just between 25 and 30. And that's not a great place to be. But if you're considering that and and contrasting it with the extremely low numbers we had over the weekend, then it may wind up being something that over a seven-day average winds up more or less leveling out. And so something to be aware of. But again, and this today actually... Uh, as we've seen, the hospitalizations and some of the other things lend itself to my theory. This statistic somewhat cuts against my theory. Now, keep in mind, it is a lagging statistic, and deaths tend to lag even more than most statistics do. And so the fact that this is a lagging statistic, the fact that the deaths that we're seeing are probably confirmed cases from at least a week to two weeks ago, would maybe suggest that we need to really to just to, to see if that winds up bearing water to see if that theory winds up being true. We really need to be looking at the stats that come in a week from now. But uh, that that definitely does cut against the theory that only the non-vulnerable population is continuing to get it. Because if we're seeing a increase in deaths, and again, that's just a one-day increase. Looking at the average overall, it's not something that's a ridiculous outlier. But we are having more deaths than we had been in the past. And one, that's to be expected when people start moving around more and people start getting out more, we're going to see an increase in confirmed cases and deaths. We knew that going into this. We knew this uh, way back when the model started, way back when all the talk of shutdown was happening. We knew that once we started opening that up, then those increases were going to take place. That was a foregone conclusion. But it's still something that could inform us on what we're going to do, how bad it's going to get. If this thing winds up getting really bad, do we need to all shelter in place again and and let it cool off? I don't see that happening. I don't see a situation to where, considering how mild it's been when it comes to the strain on our healthcare system, that we would need to do that again. But that's the reason that you keep an eye on these things, just in case we might have to do that again. And if it looks like our healthcare system was going to be overwhelmed, we would absolutely need to do that again. And I'd I'd be fine with doing that. I imagine most Alabamians would as well. But that's the reason that you don't just say, okay, time to open up now. Everything's done. Let's just ignore it. Well, you know, look at it and, and remember that the deaths trail a little bit and try to get a pretty good idea of exactly the resources we're going to need and the actions that we're going to have to take in the near future. So that's really an excellent summary of where we, the thought processes, I guess is the best way to explain it, of the kind of thinking that we're going to have to do to make decisions on how we're going to behave and how we're going to react to that data. So a couple of stories here, one that I don't say real often, 
And this was part of the namesake of this show. And there's another story that, that also did the strange allies aspect of it. Kyle Whitmire, who I went against pretty hard yesterday. If you don't believe me, take a look at yesterday's episode. I mean, I, uh, I was pretty critical of him and he deserved it. I, I was critical of him because I, I thought that he had earned said criticism However, today, I'm actually going to praise him because he did something that was actually pretty good. He, he did some journalisming, which is good. That's his job. So he pointed out that yesterday he was talking about the Senate wanted to use about $200 million of the $1.8 billion in federal money that the federal government sent to Alabama specifically to deal with the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, what he said, what, what he found out was that the Senate had actually wanted to use $200 million of that $1.8 billion to build a new state house. And what was even funnier that he included in this article was their reasoning for that. They said, well, the old one is unhealthy. That's the lamest excuse <laughs> I've ever heard. I mean, that's like the guy that goes grocery shopping for the family and uh, the, the, you know, the, the wife sends him out to pick up food for the family and she's like make sure you get some complete meals and he comes back and he's like uh well hamburgers that's your bread and your meat and uh nacho cheese doritos that's your dairy product <laughs> I, um and and coca-cola <laughs> that that that's you know his idea he's trying to re trying really hard to justify the fact that he completely ignored the directives that he was given. And that's exactly what's going on here. The senators of the state of Alabama trying to justify building a new state house with money that's supposed to go to help people that are affected by the coronavirus. And this is just bad, dirty Montgomery politics. We all know it. We're all familiar with it. Delmarsh ought to be ashamed of himself for this. The rest of the senators, I mean, granted, we don't know how many of them were actually on board with this. Uh, it, it never, it, it has not made it to that point yet. It hasn't made it to a vote, so we don't know that. But uh, that's not the only thing. There were some other special projects in here. This one was one of my favorites. They wanted to spend about $25 million of that money on the Alabama Robotics Park. So uh, that's really interesting. I'm not sure how a robotics park is supposed to combat the coronavirus, unless we're talking about nanobots that are going to go in and destroy the virus. I tend to think that's not what's going on here, because uh, if we had that technology, we definitely would be using it. So again, this is just plain old dirty pork barrel spending. Unfortunately, this kind of thing goes on in politics all the time, but props to Kyle Whitmire to bringing, bringing it to light to people. And according to the Speaker of the House, McCutcheon, he says that the House didn't know anything about this, which that's not completely, you know, ridiculous. It's very possible that the Senate had been cooking this up and the House was not made aware of it. Uh, and I, I will do this, even though this is not somebody that I praise on a routine basis. I, I've praised her before, but usually I'm more critical than because I, I believe that she deserves that criticism. Governor Kay Ivey actually came out against the deal and made a made a really strong point about it. And to his credit, Kyle Whitmire gave her credit for that as well. Uh, they wanted to limit Kay Ivey's cut of the money 
In other words, the money that was going to be allocated for her to spend, they wanted to limit her to $100 million. I think it's hilarious that when we're dealing with government money, $100 million is a limit. But I mean, it is $1.8 billion, so considering that that would only be about 5%, a little more, or a little less than, no, it would have been more than 5%. But anyway, that's still a, that's a ton of money. But Governor Ivey did something that I think is absolutely praiseworthy. What she did is she come out, she came out and said, and this is a quote, I have never desired to control a single penny of this money. And if the legislature feels so strongly that they should have the authority, I yield to them both the money and the responsibility to make a good decision. In the light of day, where the people of Alabama know what is happening, said Kay Ivey. All right. I mean, granted, when it comes to American politics, most of American politics, with a handful of rare exceptions, most of American politics is whittled down to people trying to pass off accountability onto somebody else. And it's sad that that is the state of politics, both in Alabama and in Washington and in the country overall, that what politicians spend most of their time doing is blaming other people for things that they screw up. That, that Unfortunately, that's the truth. That's just the world that we live in now. That's how politics works in this state. And you could make the argument that that is what KIV is doing. But at least she's doing it in a way that throws it back in the Senate's face and says, oh, you guys want to be the ones deciding how to spend this money? Okay, you decide to spend it, but you take the responsibility for it. All right, I'm on board with it. Well done, Meemaw. Thumbs up. I don't know of a, a better way to respond to that, just basically putting the, the putting them in the hot seat and saying, you guys are the ones that are going to have to answer for this. Now, realistically, are the people of Alabama paying close enough attention to actually vote somebody out because they vote in favor of spending this kind of money on something that has nothing to do with the coronavirus update? It's hard to say. From a political standpoint, this is just something that is so out there. It's really hard to, because this isn't really something that we've dealt with in the past. It's hard to say one way or the other, to be perfectly honest. But I think that there's at least a chance of that. And if politicians, whether it's true or not, are scared of that, they will adjust their behavior accordingly. But... Overall, the story is one of the primary reasons I just don't like federal windfalls and never have because nine times out of ten, at least some, if not a majority of the money winds up going to something that the federal government never intended for it to go to. And uh, this is typically spent by people, for example, in this example, people in the Alabama state legislature that did not appropriate this money from the federal government. And so you have layers of bureaucracy trying to go in different directions with it. It usually winds up getting wasted. Uh, there's just a myriad of different reasons why this is a dumb system. First and foremost, because we as federal taxpayers are sending our money to the Fed for them to then redistribute it to other states. That doesn't make any sense. What should happen, because not only does that red uh, include red tape, but it also incurs cost and it makes the system far more sluggish and, and clunky than it needs to be, what would make the most sense is if we paid virtually nothing in federal taxes, basically the bare bones minimum, just enough for us to have, for example, 
a White House and a Congress and, and the staff for that and a judicial system and a military and the Postal Service, and that's about it. Uh, there's a few other things, but virtually if we just limited what we spent our federal tax dollars on to that, then we could let our states make individual decisions on other things like whether or not we're going to have a welfare state, exactly how many government employees we're going to have, how to handle everything else that the federal government inserts itself in, like education. Uh, it just makes so much more sense to keep those dollars in the state. And if we're going to spend that tax money somewhere, and you could spend more or less of it depending on what you what state you live in. The majority of our taxes should go to our individual state, and because we're closer to that money and that money is closer to us, we're going to be more responsible with how it is spent. Not perfectly responsible, obviously. And this story is a case study in why the state government can't be trusted to act to to act and operate in the best interest of its people and to operate in the sunlight. But it'd still be better than sending it into that deepless, that, that endless pit of Washington for it to disappear and sometimes even be redistributed to other states. One thing that has been really interesting since this whole thing started and really to some degree since Trump took office is that you all of a sudden have people, Democrats on the left, that have suddenly discovered federalism in the Tenth Amendment and saying, well, it's a welfare program to send all this money to the states. That's a bubkus argument for a number of reasons. They're acting as though the state functions as some kind of intermediary where the state is lowering federal taxes on some people and then bringing in more federal money. Look, it's mostly the Democrats, not saying exclusively because the Republicans are guilty too, but it's primarily the Democrats that are voting for things like welfare programs that have states like Alabama, who tend to be poorer states, bringing in more things like Social Security and welfare into the state. If you want to stop it, you can do it at the federal level. And by the way, I think you should. I think that's what ought to happen. And then let individual states make a lot of those decisions on their own. And if it works out in blue states and it turns out that there's a better quality of life there, people will move there. The odds of that happening are practically non-existent, especially when you consider that the state with the largest growth of population in the past 10 years is Texas, and the one with the greatest reduction is California, but hey, at least you have the option of trying it on your own. And frankly, I think if we implemented that policy and let the states make the vast majority of the government decisions, you would have an even bigger influx of population into red states. Maybe that's an argument to not do that. I don't know. Uh, wouldn't want a whole bunch of people from New York and California moving into the Yellowhammer State either. But regardless, I think the funny thing about all this is that Del Marsh and the rest of the senators in the state of Alabama that are drawing up this scheme, they're doing basically exactly the same thing that we were always afraid that people would do with the stimulus. In other words, spend it on things that were not, it was never intended for. Part of the reason that the stimulus money was a bad idea, not the only reason, but part of the reason that the stimulus checks and just sending money out to people was a bad idea is because they were not necessarily going to spend it on things that actually stimulated the economy. We knew this going in. And because we knew that and because we understood that was a very likely outcome, that was one of many reasons I wouldn't even say the most significant reason, but one of many reasons why just sending out stimulus checks was a bad idea. 
Well, this is the exact same thing on the state level. They're going to spend some of it on things that it was intended to go for, but it seems as though the scam that was being run in the Alabama Senate was, and we're also going to spend it on a shiny new state house because we need the money. No, that's not what this money was for. There's a reason that it was given to you, and this was not it. But there we go. So props to two people that I very rarely praise. Props to Governor Kay Ivey. Props to AL.com's Kyle Whitmire, who did a bang-up job reporting this. Props to Governor Ivey, who actually did very well, both from a conservative standpoint and from a politically prudent standpoint, in framing the question this way. You know, golf applause to both of you. Polite golf applause. One last thing before we jump to a break here. There has been something that has been a real issue in the River Region for several years now, and I have just gotten to the point where I can't take it anymore, and I was thinking the other day, when this whole thing blows over and we're finally able to go back out to restaurants, and I know that technically we can now because Governor Ivey lifted the orders and and now restaurants can't open with certain very strict guidelines, but... I'm not to that point yet, and because I have two risk factors, I'm not going to be one of the ones that goes out first. I'm still, you know, out of an abundance of caution, staying home myself and kind of waiting and seeing what happens. But when I do finally go out to restaurants, I thought, where would I want to go? And one of the first places that came to mind is Whataburger. Whataburger is delicious. It's one of the best fast food places you'll ever eat at. I guarantee you the burgers are fantastic. The fries... The fries are pretty good. I wouldn't say that they're one of the best. I still think that Wendy's probably has better fries or Chick-fil-A probably has better fries. But man, the spicy ketchup makes it. The spicy ketchup is just on point. And I thought, it's such a shame that to go to Whataburger, if that indeed does become the first restaurant that I go to, it's such a shame that I have to drive all the way to Clanton an hour out of the way just to get a Whataburger. And I do remember the days when Whataburger was at East Chase. And it is really a shame. So I have started a petition to bring Whataburger back to the River Region. I don't care if it's in Montgomery or Wetumpka or Prattville or Millbrook. doesn't matter to me. I just don't want to have to drive a freaking hour to get to Whataburger. I think Whataburger would do very well on Cobbs Ford Road. I think that it would do just fine on Main Street in Wetumpka uh, or Main Street in Millbrook. Uh, That would be just fine. Highway 14 over there in Millbrook, over where the, the Walmart is. I think that it would thrive in any of those environments, probably do best in Prattville just because of the population. But I think that it is absolutely imperative that we bring Whataburger back to the river region. I'd be fine with it moving back into East Chase, hopefully a different location where it'll do better. That building was cursed. They even tore it down now. But uh, let's go ahead and sign this petition and get word out so that maybe when the economy starts kicking back up and Whataburger starts looking at some of its business practices, One of the places that it starts looking at is the River Region. And so you can sign the petition. I put it up on my Facebook page and also on my Twitter account. Go ahead, sign the petition. It doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do is go there and type your name into it. It's a change.org one. So, you know, let's try to make that happen. That would be a really good thing to sort of get people back into into the the economy once it finally does come roaring back to life, which I really hope that it does. That may be wishful thinking on my part, but that's the game plan anyway. 
So we'll go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be back with more on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Are you going to introduce me? Are we on? Oh, sorry, I was just doing my Joe Biden impression in case you happened to catch that today. Uh, man, Joe Biden comes online and it's really sad when you're somebody that's in video production and actually puts on a show every day like me, and we even had technical difficulties today. I get it. Technical difficulties, they happen. It happens. But this guy is running for president of the freaking United States, and he is the candidate. He's the only one left in the race. And I'm one dude putting this together, and my broadcast look more professional than Joe Biden's. <laughs> that whole campaign is just a train wreck from beginning to end. And granted, a lot of it is just because their candidate is a train wreck. But gosh, I mean, just looking at that, he's got to have one of the most incompetent teams I've ever seen. I, I don't know if they just they didn't get a strong enough internet connection in the rec room like he was talking about a few weeks ago or what, but Man, that guy just, he's got to get somebody under the age of 65 to help him with his internet. <laughs> that's thats something that he's got to do. I feel like the average age of the people in the Joe Biden uh, campaign staff is has got to be like 78 at this point. But I guess that does coincide with their candidacy and would also kind of explain why they're not doing so well with even the younger Democrats. But there you have it. One thing that has been really disconcerting with everything going on with the coronavirus and uh, th there's news all over the place. And these are just a couple of examples of businesses shutting down permanently. And what's really sad is a lot of small businesses that don't have a lot of liquid capital that, that can't just keep themselves afloat indefinitely. If there's a, a month of the year that just goes down for them, especially ones that are seasonal for this time of year, ones that really heavily depend on doing really well in the spring those businesses are just starting to collapse in on themselves. And there's a couple of really big ones that are doing the same thing. We're seeing it have an effect on bigger companies as well. JCPenney today, they announced that they are filing for bankruptcy. Now, granted, JCPenney has been struggling for years, just like a lot of other big name stores that we've seen go out of business. For example, Sears, I think it was last year that Sears finally kicked the bucket and a lot of these big department stores, especially because of online retail, they just can't keep up. And so it's not like JCPenney was an uber healthy company that just went belly up because of the shutdowns and the coronavirus, even though I'm certain that that played a role in, and that was a significant factor. But ultimately, it's important for us to keep in mind that this was a business that was sort of already on its swan, swan song, and this seemed to be the final nail in the coffin. But this is a lesson in capitalism. And for anybody that is a fan of free markets, this is a cautionary tale. Because JCPenney used to be one of the most profitable, profitable businesses in the country. And probably in the world. I've even read, if you've ever gone through Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, he constantly mentions and uses as a case study the rise from very humble beginnings to the empire that JCPenney was. But now JCPenney's going out of business. Now, I personally don't have a lot of love for JCPenney. I don't hate them or anything. I just never really shopped there. 
of course, I'm a single guy, so I don't really do a whole lot of clothes shopping, and as you can probably tell, I'm not exactly a fashionista. So that may be part of it. I may not be the best case study, but I don't know. I'm, I may have gone to JCPenney once, twice in the past t 10 years, five years, something like that. And remember that for a decent amount of the first few years that I was on radio, I didn't live in Montgomery. I lived in Prattville. My house was literally five minutes away from the JCPenney there in Prattville, and I, I just there was never any draw for me. It didn't matter how convenient it was. There was nothing in there that I wanted. So I can kind of see why this is happening to them. I feel bad for their employees. I know that it's going to hurt a lot of people, but that's the way capitalism goes. Sometimes you go from the mountaintop to within just a few years basically being non-existent. Maybe some other company winds up buying JCPenney out, but these giant stores with big retail spaces and a lot of overhead, I just don't see that being a very common thing in the future. You're probably going to have those in really big cities, but as far as just having these companies spread out and dotted all across the map of the United States, that's just not realistic to sustain. We're going to move a lot of our stuff to online retail. You, you may hate that. You may like that. I don't know. But that's just a reality, and the past couple months being something that JCPenney just couldn't stand up to. Now, not going out of business, so I want to make that very clear. These guys are not going out of business, but they are closing 57 of their locations, Steak and Shake. Now, again, another business that was not far from my house right there in, in Prattville. Uh, Steak and Shake was a it was a pretty good place to go hang out, but it wouldn't surprise me if one of these 57 locations that they're closing up is Prattville. Because I've been to the Steak and Shake in Prattville quite a few times. I, I wasn't like a regular there or anything. But every time I was there, it was like me and a couple other people, and that was about it. Now, sometimes they would catch a pretty good windfall of business when a movie would let out or something like that. You usually have a bunch of high school or, or young adults hanging out around there late at night, but, I mean, it just was not a place that was packed all that often. I think partly because it was in a bad location. That was a part of it. But just understanding that and seeing that would not surprise me if Prattville was one of those locations. I heard from a friend, and I genuinely didn't know this until I was talking about the story today online, that the one in Opelika closed down, which shocked me because... It was slam full every single time I went in there. Apparently, not long after I left, the service started getting really bad. They started getting really bad health score ratings, and so they wound up locking up the doors and closing. I heard from another buddy of mine that the Steak and Chicken Alabaster had already closed up before this even started. So the fact that they're losing 57 locations, not really surprising since they don't seem to have great management of their franchises. And I believe 51 of those stores were corporately owned stores and then six of them were franchises that are going to be closing so again you hate it for the franchise owners you hate it for the employees that are going to have to find work somewhere else in fact i had a good friend that went to church with me as a child that actually worked at steak and shake so i don't know if that location closes up she's probably going to lose her job so it is something that does hit close to home but again this was a business that was already struggling so what's important to understand now here is, is that we're seeing businesses that are already having some trouble, that are already kind of floundering, all of a sudden not being able to keep their head above water, which is concerning. It is a big deal. Not trying to downplay it. But what I'm really, really worried about is if this thing continues to go on, 
if we're going to see otherwise healthy businesses that were in pretty good shape before this thing started, starting to go belly up. See, when that happens, we really do need to worry. Because as bad as everything that's gone on and we've lost several trillion dollars of our economy, I mean literally trillions of dollars in our economy because of the shutdown, whether or not you agree with that decision, that's not really relevant to our discussion right now. Even if you agreed with the shutdown, you thought it was a bad idea, doesn't matter for the time being. It's still a loss of trillions of dollars regardless of what side of that argument you happen to fall on. So with that loss of trillions of dollars, that means that if we start seeing a decline in very healthy businesses that were doing fine beforehand, then we're in real trouble. Because the pandemic being the last nail in the coffin for some struggling businesses, that's a bad thing, but it's not the worst thing. It's not something that's going to, to cause some kind of big uh, ripple effect. If we start seeing otherwise very healthy businesses that were doing just fine before the virus all of a sudden having to shut their doors, that means we may be on the verge of a depression. And that is very, very possible. I hope that that's not the case. We haven't really seen that yet, or at least not in, in large scale. But if that happens, then we really, really are in trouble. And it's time to start evaluating. I mean, at that point, even if the pandemic were as bad as all of the, the panic porn peddlers are saying it was, then we'd pretty much have to open up because it's, it's kind of like a, a choice between doing something incredibly risky and starving. Like, at some point, you got to take the risk to make sure that you don't die of starvation. I'm not saying we're at that point. In fact, I'm kind of saying the opposite. I'm saying we're not at that point yet, and this is sort of an indication of that. But if we do get to that point, we're going to have to s ask some of those very serious questions. But I think that one thing that I should point out here, especially because we were talking about Steak and Shake, restaurants are in real danger for three big reasons. One of those reasons is successful restaurants, they're already op operating at a 3 to 5% profit margin. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, and granted, of course, restaurants do better in some months than others. But if they just miss a month of business, well, that's one twelfth, which is more than 5%. So even a restaurant that was very successful and doing very well if they only had a 5% profit margin and they just miss a month and a half of business, well, man, I mean, that may be something that even a successful restaurant just can't recover from. And it's also part of the reason that we're seeing primarily people in close contact businesses like hair salons, but also restaurant owners saying, yeah, we can't just stay shut down for much longer. We're already reaching the breaking point now. And that's the reason that you're seeing some of them even go so far as to defy those orders and open up their dining rooms. But another reason, the second reason here, is that eating out is one of the very first things people cut from their budget. There are certain things that are kind of recession-proof. And oddly enough, one that we've been talking about a lot recently, things like barbershops, they're more or less recession-proof. I mean, they may have to take some losses at some point, people may get a haircut every month instead of every two weeks. But at some point, people are still going to need their haircut. And so to a great degree, they're more or less recession-proof. Restaurants just aren't. And that sucks for them, but 
one of the first things people do when they start looking at the budget and say, okay, uh, let's see here. What can we cut? Ah, we're eating out too much. It's almost always one of the very first things that people look at. And so if the economy as a whole is unhealthy, restaurants are going to be one of the very first things that see the ripple effects of that. It's one of the first things that they're going to notice because people got to eat, but they don't have to eat at a restaurant. And so that makes them more vulnerable. The third thing here is that they are being unjustly targeted. It really doesn't make any sense for big box stores and retailers to be open versus restaurants. Because if you go to a restaurant, and of course, I'm not suggesting that they don't take any precautions or that they pack people into small spaces or anything like that. But think about this. Even if you are somebody that is going into a Home Depot for something that is 100% essential, even if you go in, grab literally one thing off the shelf and check out, first of all, you have to interact with a cashier at some point. And you have to touch a surface in order to pick up a piece of merchandise. And there's no telling how many other people, be they workers or other customers, have already touched that piece of merchandise. So it's kind of a high-risk activity, to be perfectly honest. I understand why we need those things to be open, because we have to buy things like food and amenities. But ultimately, it is something that does incur a significant amount of risk. Let's compare that, or rather contrast that, to your experience at a restaurant. Let's say that a restaurant is maintaining as much social distancing protocol, just like the, the retail business in our example was, that they're wearing masks and gloves and trying to make sure that everybody's safe. Well, you go to a restaurant, you go to the hostess, she seats you, all the while maintaining six feet distant, gives you a paper menu that are, that's disposable, and takes your order, goes back to the kitchen, brings your food. Is that high risk? Well, to a degree it is, because somebody had to cook your food and somebody had to bring you your food. But as long as you're sitting in a sanitized booth with only other people in your household, you can more or less do that with very little risk to you. And as far as the risk level versus a retail establishment where people are, are cramming in, there's nobody making sure that people are staying six feet apart and you have no idea how many people have touched the merchandise that you pick up, after you've picked it up, there's just no comparison. A restaurant is significantly lower risk and yet are being specifically targeted and are not even allowed to open up, for example, outdoor, at least not until just the other day, literally yesterday when KIV rescinded that in the state of Alabama and in other states that still hasn't happened. And then there's a fourth reason, a secret fourth reason, because all the other stuff, that's really just a part of the restaurant business. The fourth step is something that is completely external and it's really not the restaurant people's fault, but this is something that is going to be broader and affecting every industry that employs a large amount of low-skill workers that aren't necessarily expensive labor. One thing that the government has done, which I think is going to, we're going to find out in a few years, severely backfired, is increase the level of employment and extend, extended the benefits of unemployment. Because now what's happening, because they've padded this thing so full with money, is that you have people that would rather collect unemployment than go back to work. I had a conversation with a friend of mine that's, I'm not going to reveal who it was, but it was somebody that was really close to me, somebody that I know, and has a pretty good job with a decent income. I mean, they're not exactly making money hand over fist, but they make a decent amount. And this person told me, and this particular person, by the way, 
loves to work. And I have no doubt that the second they would allow him to go back to work, they absolutely would that second. But not everybody's like that. And not everybody loves their job as much as he does and, and loves just work in general as much as he does. But he said to me the other day, he's like, dude, I'm actually making more money on unemployment, sitting at home at my house, taking care of my kids and playing video games than I would be if I were working. And to that guy, he would still rather work. But there's going to be a large percentage of the population that is getting unemployment right now that's not. They would rather not be employed, not have to wake up in the morning, not have to go to work, and just live on the government's dime. And especially with an industry that uses a lot of low-pay, low-skill labor like restaurants, that's going to be really hard for them to maintain employees. They're either going to have to pay more and artificially inflate their own wages because the government is making it more appetizing and more enticing for people to just stay home, lay around in their underwear rather than work and take home about the same amount of money or maybe even a little more in, in a lot of cases. Or they're just going to have to operate on a skeleton crew. And so the restaurant business is really extra vulnerable because of that as well. So I am concerned, but I'll be a lot more concerned when we see really healthy businesses going belly up. I hope that that doesn't happen. We'll keep an eye on it and try to keep you up to date on that. This next one is a really strange story because just like the earlier story where I was praising Kyle Whitmire and Kay Ivey and dogging the Republican Senate, I find myself on the odd end of this story as well. So this particular story, I am siding with Google and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, I've had my differences with Whitmire and Kay Ivey, but, you know, I do occasionally agree with them, and it's not the first time that I've praised them on the show. I don't know that I've ever praised the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or Google at any point on this show in the entire, what is it, three years now, three-year run of this program. I don't know that I've ever done that. But I actually think that they're in the right on this one. And the person that I'm siding against, of all people, is Dennis Prager. And I love Dennis Prager. Two of his books, The Rational Bible, where he gives commentary on Genesis and Exodus, excellent. I love his PragerU videos. I think that he's fantastic. But I think he's wrong on this one. And I think, weirdly enough, the Ninth Circuit and Google are actually right. So it puts me in a very strange position. But, I mean, I, I got to go with wh which one I actually believe is correct. As Abraham Lincoln said, I will side with any man when he is right. So this ruling came down from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on a case where Dennis Prager was suing YouTube for censorship. Now, of course, YouTube, when I say YouTube and Google, remember that Google is the parent company of YouTube. So whenever I say YouTube or Google, I may use those interchangeably. That's the reason why. They're all owned under the same parent company of Alphabet. So Google is, uh, in, in this particular case, the ones that were censoring his content and one of the pieces, and, and they've done this with several of his videos, but one that he used as a big example was a video that was talking about violence in the Middle East. 
but remember that his PragerU videos are actually geared towards young people, and they're all animated, so it wasn't showing any graphic actual violence. What it was talking about is the violence perpetrated by radical Muslim extremists. And interestingly enough, the guest speaker on that episode, on that little video, was a reformed Muslim from England who went to the Middle East to become a jihadist and realized he was in the wrong. And yet somehow, this video got deemed restricted for violence, and they wound up putting it in a, a category, essentially, that the youngest people on YouTube could not view it. Anybody that was under the age of 18 was not allowed to view that video, which significantly hurts Dennis Prager's views and everything else because that's his core audience. That's who he gears his videos specifically toward. Now, practically, this is not a great argument. The argument that I just made, not a great argument for me or Dennis Prager, and here's why. From a practical standpoint, YouTube is about as secure as your average porn, porn site. Which is sad, but it's the truth. It's actually one of the main reasons that even though I tend to be very libertarian on things like that, I actually do think that we should just out and out outlaw online porn or at least make it to where it's not accessible to minors. Because what we've essentially done is, if we were to equate it to alcohol, we have put a brewery right next to a high school and left bottles out in the open where anybody could just come up and grab one or to make it even more appropriate to the particular situation, it's almost like we took away all the ID laws, and you can't get a beer until you're 21, but as long as you walk up to the counter, it doesn't matter if you look like you're 14, and you say, I want a beer, and you say, hey, are you 21? And they go, yeah, okay, well, go ahead, take it. That's essentially what we've done with pornography, and I've done several episodes on this, so I'm not going to dive real deep into it. You can go back and watch, for example my interview with Dr. Lou Butterfield uh, from wefightporn.com to, to look at this. I'll, I'll try to remember to add a card for that later. But ultimately, that's essentially what's going on here. So because YouTube is not exactly strict on that, all a person has to do is say, oh yeah, I'm definitely 18. And then they can watch your Prager's videos. But I understand the argument that, especially because he gears his material towards children, that it could be, at least be perceived as something that's really bad. And furthermore, less than 2% of all YouTube users actually have restricted mode on. So only 2% of the people that use YouTube would be barred from watching this in the first place. Actually, because YouTube tends to bar content like this that just disagrees with their political opinion, that's the reason I have restricted mode turned off. It's not that I want to look at all the other stuff that would be quote-unquote restricted, it's that I don't want to have to deal with the hassle of going through and explaining to YouTube I'm okay with watching this video every time I want to see a PragerU video. But anyway, Tulsi Gabbard, interestingly enough, you remember she's the candidate from the Democrat Party that was kind of a, had sort of a cult following. She made a little noise. I don't think she ever really got above about 1% or 2% of the vote. But Tulsi Gabbard, uh, an actual elected official and somebody that was pretty prominent in the Democrat Party, running for president, was well-known amongst Democrats that were paying attention to the news, she actually followed a, filed a similar suit. And in both of their cases, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal was, uh, was faced with this question. Is YouTube a private company or a public utility? Because the argument that both Gabbard and Dennis Prager were making is that YouTube has gotten so big, they have such a giant share 
of the market when it comes to things like search engines, like online videos, that YouTube should essentially be considered a public utility and thus should be barred from censorship or partiality based on political agenda. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals went, no, they're not. I mean, I know that that's a dumbed-down explanation, but basically that was it. They said, no, Google's a private company. If they want to censor you based on your political opinion, they're allowed to do that. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. I mean, just last week we found out that Google actually scrubbed the Larry King episode that featured the mother of Joe Biden's accuser on it. That's a coincidence. Sure, I believe that. In their whole archive, that's the only episode that they just inadvertently deleted without a single explanation. And by the way, it's in the middle of the week, so there's just a date missing from that. But sure, that's a mistake. That's just a coincidence that Google got rid of that. Kind of makes sense why Google abandoned their longtime company motto, don't be evil. I, I guess they've decided it's okay to be a little evil. But here they are arguing that they are not a public utility. They are a privately traded company which they are, and this was part of the decision that was brought down by Circuit Cut Judge M. Margaret McNone, I think is the... McCowan? I don't know. She's one of the judges on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. PragerU runs headfirst into two insurmountable barriers, the First Amendment and the Supreme Court precedent. Yeah, that's pretty succinct, but that's the truth. The First Amendment protects us from government censorship, not private censorship. It's the same reason that I don't have to have anybody on my show that I don't want to. If somebody that I disagreed with wanted to come on my show, now I would let them on. I like having people that disagree with me on my show. In fact, I wish I got more people that disagreed with me to come on my show. But normally, I can't do that. But, but let's say that I wasn't. Let's say that I was somebody that didn't want any opposing views on my show. I don't have to have them on. Cumulus is a private company. We're not NPR. We don't have to give them equal time. There's just no rules about that. And a private company is allowed to censor if that's what they want to do, which apparently Google does. Now, that being said, there is a difference here in a moral argument and a, a legal argument, which, by the way, I do think one thing that's hilarious about this whole decision is that the court is basically admitting that YouTube is censoring people based on their political agenda, which is true, but Google's denying that that's what's taking place. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is basically saying, well, yeah, they are, but so what? That's essentially a pretty good summary of what they're saying. Uh, but the, the difference here is the moral argument and the legal argument. I do think that it's immoral for YouTube, especially when they portray themselves as this big open forum that anybody can come on to and speak on, for them to portray themselves that way and then the second that somebody actually does that, that disagrees with them, they're like, mm, no, 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 we didn't mean you. Look, if Google wants to be a news organization or they want to be a user community that specifically caters to ideas on the left, okay, be that then. That's fine. Just tell people. If you want to censor political speech and not have people on or shadow ban them or take videos that has content that you just personally disagree with or cuts against your personal politics and put them on the restricted list like you did with Dennis Prager, okay, I think that's wrong, but you have the right to do it. See, that's the difference. I'm okay with making a separate moral argument and a legal argument. I think that what Google is doing is evil. I just said that. 
but I also think they have the legal right to do it. And though I disagree with their practice, I will fight till my last breath for their right to do it. That's what it means to be a free speech absolutionist. I believe in free speech, including speech that I don't like. I believe in free speech because I believe that companies like Google, if they want to censor people from using their own platform, they have a right to do it. Here's the sticking point. Here's the caveat. Because there is a sticking point here that I, I want to bring up. I think that there actually is a case to be made here. I think Dennis Prager made the wrong one. Because I don't think that you should say that YouTube should become a public utility. I do think that it's wise to say that they did a breach of contract. In other words, they have violated their own terms of service. To me, that's the far smarter argument to make. Because Google constantly claims as though it is not a political organization, that it is not censoring people with different ideas, and that's part of the terms of service, and yet they have restricted him for nothing other than their political opinion. Now, granted, it's the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, so I don't know how they would have ruled if Dennis Prager had made that argument, but I think from a legal perspective, that would have been a much smarter argument for him to have made trying to sue them. But the caveat in all of this, and the thing that we do need to keep in mind, because now I'm going to switch to making the moral argument, is that if this is going to take place, if Google is going to censor people, which they already are, we've got proof of it. Heck, they've even shadow banned us. We've talked about that on the show before. Uh, last year on our Christmas special, we went through how all the different ways that they're shadow banning us, trying to make sure that our content doesn't see the light of the day. Even when you specifically search for Caleb Cockwit Tactics Radio, I think I was like the 87th or 89th search result. And the guys that showed up in the search result before me had way less views and had nothing to do with the things that we were searching for. So that definitely takes place even with small fries like me. However, the problem that I have with that is that Google gets all kinds of government grants and kickbacks and favors because they claim that they are a politically neutral organization, that they just lay it all out there. Anybody can post. They're not going to censor you based on your political opinion. They take that money. They take those favors. They take those grants and claim all of that and then do stuff like this. That's the sticking point. That's the reason that I say that this should not be allowed. Now, I had a, a really intense conversation earlier today with a good friend of mine. Uh, he's somebody that's on the left. He tends to favor government control. His strategy in solving this, because he, he came back at me when I was making my free speech argument, and he had a legitimate gripe. I don't think that he was wrong in voicing this concern. He said that it's not right that a big, powerful company like this can hang on to such a large portion of the market share and then do things like this, get all these special favors and, and government help and all those things, despite the fact that they're not upholding their side of the bargain, they're claiming to be politically neutral and to not censor based on political speech and getting government funds and government favors as a result of it, even though they are. Yeah, I'm 100% there with you, brother. The difference is, his solution is, let's get government more involved. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a bad idea for a number of reasons. First and foremost amongst them, have you ever known government to get involved in something and the government made it less corrupt? I'd be fascinated to hear of a private company or even an industry that the government decided, yeah, we're going to take that over, and then it went from being very corrupt to less corrupt. 
I was going to say not corrupt, but I mean, everything involving the government is at least some corrupt. So I'll even take less corrupt. I'll even take if, if there was a really corrupt company that the government just intervened, took over, and then it all of a sudden became less corrupt than it was before. No, usually the opposite happens. When the government steps in, the corruption amplifies because they add layers of bureaucracy where corrupt people can hide, and they also don't have to serve the profit uh, the, the profit motivation and serve the customer the way that they did beforehand. So normally the exact opposite of that happens. Great example, AT&T. They essentially had a government-sanctioned monopoly. And what happened? Awful government service. I mean, they, they basically made having a phone like taking a visit to the DMV, which everybody should loathe. And they had a monopoly on all of the business, they didn't upgrade their technology nearly as soon as they should have, and if they'd had to compete with another telephone company, definitely would have. And so when the government gets involved with something and treats, for example, the phone system as though it's a public utility, it becomes evil and corrupt and actually becomes worse for the customer and worse for the government. Treating Google and YouTube like a public utility is a horrible idea. Because the same thing will happen here. So the solution is to draw back the government. Get the government less involved in Google, less involved in YouTube. And so I'm in favor of them losing these privileges, especially the ones that they specifically got because they were a public utility. Well, they weren't a public utility, but they were a platform. And another thing that you should keep in mind, too is they get a lot of special protections as a neutral platform that they cannot be sued for their content. Since they're a platform and not a news provider or a, a news source, like, for example, the New York Times, YouTube is completely immune to things like libel. Now, here's the thing. I don't want YouTube to have to be legally liable for the things that I'm printing, but if they're censoring content and acting as a gatekeeper, then YouTube is a news source. YouTube is a organization. They are not a platform that is neutral. And so if that's the case, they can do that if they want to. They have the right to do that. They should lose those protections. And they should be treated just like CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Blaze or Breitbart or any other news organization. They should have those same legal liabilities, be upheld to those same standards, and be treated exactly the same way. That's what ought to happen if we're debating what's the best way to handle this. So, yeah, I, I hate what Google is doing. I do. But I think that they have a right to do it. But if they're going to do it, they need to lose all of the government favoritism that is coming their way. All right, let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. Today's Daily Dose of Stupid, man, they're stupid and then there's just stupid. I mean, our Daily Dose of Stupid is always chock full of stupid. This is one of the dumber ones that I've seen in a while. So this guy might be the worst lawyer in the United States of America. So I'm sure that most of you have heard by this point because it's all over the news and, and rightfully so. Uh, the case of Almud Aubrey, I have no idea if I'm saying that right. Uh, Al Almud, I think, is the way to say it, Aubrey. And it's the jogger who, a former football player, black guy that was just jogging down the road and all of a sudden was accosted by two guys in a truck with guns 
the guy points the gun at him, tells him to stop. He f- has a struggle with the guy trying to get his gun away from him. And then the, uh, the, the kid sadly gets shot and killed, basically murdered by these two guys. Well, it turns out that that video only surfaced, and really that's what brought this story to national attention because of a guy named Alan Tucker, who is a local defense attorney in the area that is friends with the defendants, the, uh, the son and father that wound up killing this guy. So here's the interesting thing. This is the video that he wound up leaking. He was the original source that allowed this to go out into the media. And if you haven't seen the video yet, it's the same video that's been playing for the last couple of days making the news rounds. Here it is. The really strange thing about this is the defense lawyer who is friends of the defendants, the guys that shot this guy, he's actually the one that leaked it because he thought that somehow that video made them look better? I I don't really understand how anybody with any level of competence comes to that conclusion, but that seems to be what happened here. So, according to Alan Tucker, the the guy who leaked this, um, he said if Aubrey had just froze and hadn't done anything, he wouldn't have gotten shot. Well, first of all, how do you know that? Because they were shooting at him even before there was a struggle for that gun. You hear very distinctly at least two gunshots. We don't know if it hit anybody or what, but they were shooting at him before that took place. And second of all, and this is the the bigger sticking point with me, he's trying to make this case that this was a citizen's arrest. And just like if you're given a lawful order from a police officer to freeze, if you refuse to freeze, if you refuse to comply with that arrest, the officer can use lethal force in cases if he believes that you're going to be a threat to yourself or somebody else. But that's not what happened here. It has been reported that this guy was a police officer. He was not. He was... He had been connected to law enforcement at some point. He was like a volunteer deputy or something at some point, but he was not at the time that this took place. And he certainly didn't have the authority of law. He's just a regular citizen at the time of this taking place, which actually I think makes it worse because that means this guy should have known better than to try to make a citizen's arrest like this. But let's just dig into that claim, shall we? Let's go ahead and look at citizen's arrest law in Georgia. So this is the the law in Georgia. Uh, Georgia Code for Criminal Procedure, Title 17, grounds for a citizen's arrest. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Now, the reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, that's somewhat shaky in this case as well, but I don't really want to focus on that because I think the other two points that meet that have to be met to meet the qualification of a citizen arrest are actually more prevalent here. So you'll notice the two things that it said there is that the offense is committed in the person's presence. Well, in this case, it wasn't. Based on the story that we've been told, they heard that this guy was trespassing and going onto somebody else's property, and so they went out and found somebody that met the description of that person. And because of that, and this is 
actually the same lawyer's own word saying that they saw someone who fit the description of the criminal. Yeah, you can't go after people because they meet an APB. That's not something a private citizen can do. Now, I don't have any experience in law enforcement myself. I was a private detective for a little while. Uh, didn't really have a ton of experience even in that. But I've never been a law enforcement official. But even I know that you can't just go out looking for criminals and arrest them and hold them and, and that somehow be something that's legal. You can't just go out trying to track down criminals on your own. That's not a thing that you can do as a private citizen. Police officers can. Citizens can't. And the Georgia law, by the way, reflects that. You have to be in the presence of somebody or be within immediate knowledge of that. In other words, you either have to have, have seen them commit the crime or have direct knowledge from somebody that did like that. That's a pretty high bar to clear, and, and I think that's appropriate so we don't have people just going out basically handing down vigilante justice all willy-nilly. If two guys come up to me, for example, and they've got guns and they tell me, hey, stop, we want to talk to you. Um, no, unless you're an actual police officer, there is no way I'm stopping. In fact, if you do pull a gun on me and I'm unarmed, I do exactly what that guy did. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to try to get somebody's gun away from him. Because the odds of me surviving if I'm unarmed and they're not are slim to none, so I'm going to take the only chance that I've got, which is to get one of their firearms. And I'm just saying from... From this perspective, I don't see how this attorney looks at that video and goes, oh yeah, this will calm things down. This will definitely make it better. This dude's a moron if he thought that. Like nobody, no reasonable person can watch that video and see what unfolded. And knowing the backstory even makes it worse that they didn't even see this guy commit a crime, that they weren't chasing him down because they, they saw him commit something. You can't do that. You can't hold somebody at gunpoint. That's actually what's known as a false imprisonment which, by the way, is a crime. You see, in this video, even if this guy was criminally trespassing, the people in the truck are the criminals because they were engaged in what's known as a false imprisonment. In fact, it actually technically meets the qualification of a kidnapping because you're holding somebody against their will, but in this case, they were also sort of abducting the person. So it's kind of... Hard to tell whether it's a false imprisonment or because they were trying a citizen's arrest or a kidnapping, but either way, those guys are actually the criminals in this situation, and that video just lends proof to that. And then here's another thing that you need to consider as well. This is also part of Georgia law. If you'll look at this real quick, this is Georgia Code Title 16, where it states, a person who commits the offense of criminal trespass shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. Huh. Well, you may recall in the law that we just read, for something to constitute a citizen's arrest, it must be a felony. So even if this guy was trespassing, and maybe he was, uh, there's recent video footage that suggests he probably was, even though it doesn't look like he did anything wrong. He just... Uh, kind of wondered upon a construction site, didn't realize what it was. And there are a lot of people going, oh, well, people don't really do that in real life. I'm like, have you never met a dude? We do that all the freaking time. Whenever there's men working, other men want to stand around watching people. It's just a guy thing. We've all done that. I don't know how many construction sites I've come across, uh, either walking around. Or, I mean, that's just a common thing that men do. But regardless, maybe he was actually trespassing. Even if he was, still doesn't matter. Even if he was criminally trespassing, 
there's still no crime here because that would have been a misdemeanor. A citizen's arrest has to be a felony. And so on two different accounts, what they did, what we just saw transpire on that video, it doesn't pass the smell test of what constitutes a citizen's arrest. And this same guy, Tucker, also tried to give this explanation of what was going on here and why he leaked this video. He said to the New York Times, quote, It wasn't two men with a Confederate flag in the back of a truck going down the road shooting at a jogger in the back. Well, no, that's certainly true. And maybe that would make it look worse. But at the end of the day, it's really not any different. Like, regardless of what they were trying to do, they straight up murdered the guy. And whether they shot him in the back with no warning or they said, hey, we want to talk to you and start threatening the guy, that's the one acting in self-defense. Aubrey's the one acting in self-defense. Because like I said, if, if that same situation happens to me and I'm out for a jog, which would never happen because I don't jog, out, <laughs> if that same situation were to happen to me, I do exactly the same thing this kid did. He was the one acting in self-defense. The other guys are the aggressors. And so the maybe there was a racial motivation in there. I don't know. I can't see into these guys, and maybe we'll find out down the road that there absolutely was racial motivation. Whether the guys had a Confederate flag on their truck doesn't make them racist or not racist. And even if they were racist, whether they did it because he was a black kid or whether they did it because they really did think that he was trespassing, either way, they were in the wrong. They killed him. Doesn't matter whether they were racist or not. And so I don't understand how any rational person could think that this somehow helps them out because this is ultimately the reason that I don't think hate crime should even be a thing on the books because ultimately it doesn't really matter what the motivation is. If you killed the guy, you killed the guy. And so maybe these guys were hood-wearing clan members and maybe they didn't have a racist bone in their body. They just thought this guy was a criminal and handled it the absolutely wrong way. I think that one definitely paints them in a worse light. It's definitely more disgusting to do so because you don't like the guy because of his skin color. But ultimately, what they did doesn't matter. Whether they killed this kid because he was black or him being black had nothing to do with it, it's still a hate crime. Because you have to have criminal apathy for human life to treat a person like this, regardless of what color their skin is. And I do think that one thing that we all need to remember is that even if race did play a factor in it, and it may very well do it, there's nothing racist about asking that question. Because when you go forward with something like this, saying, well, I don't know, maybe it was racist, maybe it wasn't, that doesn't make you a racist. That doesn't make you covering for racist. Because even if it turns out they were, asking the question, there's nothing wrong with that. And frankly, I think that it's a good question to ask. I really genuinely want to know whether they were or not. I think that it's interesting, but I don't think it affects the, the fact that they killed this guy. The fact that they murdered him, and what's really sad about this is that whether it was racially motivated or not, these guys probably would have gotten away with murder had it not been for their bumbling lawyer. I mean, if this thing does not get to the national story that it is, if this thing doesn't rise to the level and, and this video doesn't come out showing the blatant disregard for human life that this video shows, sadly, there's a good chance that this guy never sees justice. 
there's a good chance that these guys get off scot-free. And that should be terrifying to every American. A mishandling of justice anywhere is a mishandling of justice everywhere. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our chaplain's report today, we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you'll look there in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, you may recall that where we last left off on this passage is that Saul is about to be coronated. He's already been anointed king. Now they're basically going, spreading the word, hey, Saul's going to be the new king. Samuel's kind of going before him, declaring this, and uh, some of these, some parts of, or aspects of this story have already unfolded. We're going to look at sort of the last really big public proclamation that Saul is now the king of Israel. And we find that in 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 through 19, which read, Thereafter Samuel called the people together to the Lord of Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, and have and yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Now to some extent... You really got to feel for Saul. This is supposed to be his coronation. This is his big day. And God does take it as an opportunity to remind people, yeah, guys, remember, this wasn't my plan. I didn't want there to be a king. I wanted y'all to just have me as your king and just be judges. But now you're going to put your faith in a king. And so I'm giving you exactly what you ask for. And so it's kind of, I don't know, something to pop Saul's bubble, even though we don't really see any any indication that that's what happened here. But it does re-emphasize the point that God's plan was there to not be a king and for him to be Israel's king. So, since this is already recorded in the book of Samuel, since he's already told the Israelites this once, why does he repeat it here? And why is it recorded a second time in the scripture? Is it just for emphasis? Let's dig into why that is. I think that it's the same lesson that God gave them at the beginning, but giving it the second time, it adds a little bit of extra flair to it for a couple of reasons. First of all, do you notice how God couples his proclamation here about him not wanting there to be a king? Do you notice that he couples that with an introduction and a history lesson? He just reminds them, hey, Israel, by the way, keep in mind, I'm your God, not a king. And remember that I'm the one that brought you out of Israel. And I'm the one that rescued you from all the kingdoms within Israel 
that were oppressing you. When I brought you out of Egypt, when I brought you to Canaan's land, I'm the one that took you out of that captivity. I'm the one that allowed you to prevail before your enemies here in the promised land. And I'm the one that allowed you to take this land. You're here because I put you here. And I think that that was wise because what do humans tend to do? We tend to give credit to whoever is in charge. Being somebody that follows politics and talks about it quite a bit, I can tell you there's all kinds of times where people will give somebody credit that had nothing to do with some kind of great accomplishment or some improvement in the person's life. So God is sending them out as a reminder was they're finally going to have a king and have a have Saul crowned before everybody and, and the proclamation be put out that Saul is the one that is going to lead God's people. God just wants to remind them, hey, just so you all know, first of all, you don't really need a king because I've been here the whole time. I'm just doing this because you all have begged me to no end to do so. And second of all, remember who I am. Remember that it's not a king that delivered you from Egypt. That was me. Remember that it wasn't a king that established you in this land. That was me. And so don't forget who is the one that actually takes care of you. And so I think that there is a lot of important truths in that. First of all, let's remember people have short memories. I mean, anybody that has studied politics or religion or history understands how short people's attention spans and memories are. And this is back before they had 10,000 distractions like, you know, a screen the, that fits in their pocket, that can tell them literally anything they have ever wanted to know. The, the entire collected wisdom of mankind, including the scripture, contained in a little rec, uh, plastic rectangle that we keep in our pockets. That's before they had those. And people even back then had short attention spans and short memories. And it would not be inconceivable at all to imagine that they might forget who really brought them there and the reason they were actually in Israel because they did this all the time. They had already done this several times beforehand, even in the short, relatively short time they had been in Israel by the point that they started having kings and the time of judges came to an end. But I think part of the reason that God did this as well is we have to remember the context in which this takes place. Royalty worship was not an abnormality. In fact, it was the norm. People usually worshipped their nobility. In Egypt, for example, which they had come out of in that society, Pharaoh wasn't just king, he was literally a god. He was listed among the gods of Egypt, and he was on equal footing with them. And when the pharaohs died, they joined the gods. When it came to other cultures, whether it was the ones that they were surrounded by, the pagan cultures in the promised land, whether we're talking about societies in the Far East, people worshipped their rulers as though they were deities at that time. They would worship some non-ruling deities as well, but ultimately they saw a lot of their kings and queens and royalty as on par with actual gods. And God knew, especially with these people that had a horrible track record of falling into paganism, there was a darn good chance they were going to fall into a lot of their other practices as well, and, and probably did. But another thing, and I think that this may be the more important part of this, is that God was pointing out, look, I liberated you. 
I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that saved you from the people that wanted to oppress you once you got to the promised land and have kept you free and safe ever since then that have driven your enemies away from you when they came after you and tried to take the land again. I'm the one that protected you. I'm the one that brings you liberty. The king didn't. And by the way, you're opting to be oppressed. I brought you out to be a people that is distinct, a peculiar people that just lived with God as your king, and you didn't want it. You wanted to be like everybody else. You wanted to have the same oppressions. You wanted to have the same system that they did. So fine, you got your way. I hope you're happy. And I don't mean to be overly sarcastic or make God sound like he's bitter because he genuinely wants them to understand that the choices they have made is going to hurt them. Just like a loving parent tells some, when their kids make a decision that is stupid or reckless or hurtful to them, they say, okay, I can't stop you, but I hope you understand what you're getting yourself into. I'm trying to warn you, this is why this is a bad decision. And God is trying to impart that wisdom to them. They were under the same kind of oppression in Egypt where they had a king that was worshipped like a deity. And then, as soon as God led them out, what's the first thing they did when they got to Sinai? They built an idol. They had just escaped the slavery of idolatry. They had just escaped the oppression of having a God made out of the workmanship of men's hands. And they went right back to it. Because... At their core, they were still slaves. They still had the slavery mindset. They were still an oppressed people. And even when God offered them liberty and held it out to them and said, please take it, they said, no thanks, we're good. And isn't that what people do today? When we hold out all the blessings and gifts that Christianity can offer people, the peace that passes all understanding, the contentment, the joy, the family aspect of the church, all of that, how many people, the majority of people, they go, I'm good. I'll just stay a slave to my sin, a slave to my own impulses, a slave to whatever else it is that I'm worshiping. I don't need that liberty. I'm, I'm fine. You see, this is a lesson that speaks to us today just as much as it did to the Israelites that were engaging in this practice back then that were dying to have a king even though they were freer and better off without one. You see, they rejected God as their king, and most people today do the same thing. Most people today look at the blessings that God is offering them and just slap his hand away and go, nope, not interested. It really is sad and sobering. But ultimately, it gets to a deeper issue that affects them, and it affects us too. They weren't content with God. They didn't think that God was going to be enough. They didn't think that what God was offering was worth it. They didn't think that the, any sacrifices they would have to make, and in their case, being different than all the other nations, like that was such a big deal. They didn't think it was worth what God was offering them. And that's the thing that we struggle with every day. When we get tempted by sins, when we want to engage in those things that we know we're not supposed to do, when we rebel against and disobey our Lord and Savior, what we're essentially saying is, God, we don't want the liberty that you're offering us. We don't want it. We'll let something else be king of our life. It'll be fine. Either we'll be king of our own life or we'll make something else, some idol or even some person, king of our life. We don't need you to run our lives for us. Well, yeah, actually we do. And if we do, we would be far more content, far more joyous, 
for people that are outside, they don't really understand how much better a life lived with God's purpose at its core really is. And that means just like God is reminding them of this here, it's our jobs as Christians, as representatives of Christ here on earth, to do the same thing for our brothers and sisters in the rest of humanity. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.